from University of Puget Sound, it's What We Do, a weekly podcast about the innovators, teachers, dreamers, and performers of Puget Sound and the stories behind the work they do. Hello, and welcome once again to What We Do. I'm Chuck Luce, the editor of Arches, Puget Sound's alumni magazine. And joining me this afternoon is Professor Emeritus of English, Rob Garrett. Greetings, Professor. Nice to see you, Chuck. Thanks for joining us in the it's a pleasure. opulent What We Do Alder Street Studios. Very nice to be here. Today we're going to talk about your book just out this month called Home Team, The Turbulent History of the San Francisco Giants. And Now, you're a scholar of Irish literature, especially Irish poetry. So first I have to ask, what is writing about baseball? How does that fit in with you? I, I mean, you know, Yogi Barrett, we, we kind of think of him as a poet, but uh, he, he ain't no James Joyce. <laughs> no. Well, that's that's the question that ask, a number of people have asked me. Uh, I finished my last book actually on Irish fiction, uh, and I published it in 2011, and um, I was already um, fully retired from the university as a, as a full professor, full-time professor, I should say, but I was in the emeritus teaching program. So in a sense, I was still connected to the university as a teacher, and I was doing courses in 20th century British literature, including Irish writers. So I felt was I was still tethered to that uh, original scholarly field. But at the same time, I knew that I was heading into, you know, what I call a different kind of writing, retirement and so on. And I probably thought, this is my last Irish book. I'd done about four or five projects in Irish literature and... Uh, and I was, I grew up in San, I was born in San Francisco, grew up there, went to high school in the Bay Area, and the Giants were always an interest to me. And I started reading um, histories of baseball. And I came across a book called The Dodgers Moved West. And I looked at the cover and I said, surely you jest. Of course the Dodgers moved west, but somebody else did too. And so I opened it up. There was I read the entire book, and about page 173, he said, oh, and the Giants moved as well, and that would be an interesting uh, and fruitful uh, um, investigation. End of story about the Giants, on to more about the Dodgers. And so uh, I thought, wow, there's an opening. And I got very interested in Horace Stoneham, the man who moved the Giants uh, from New York City. I read a little bit about the earlier New York teams, although I wasn't much interested in the ancient history of New York Giants, meaning early 20th century, John McGraw, Christy Matthewson. I really was focusing on the late 50s when they decided to move, and I got very interested in Stoneham and thought the project would be a biography of Horace Stoneham. And that's how I began. I contacted the family. Two of his granddaughters were extremely helpful. They became a conduit for me. I got into family archives, papers. And then I realized... I, got, I started to get interested in the, in the relationship of the team to the city because Stoneham had to negotiate with the mayor at the time, George Christopher. And I thought, there's more to it here than just the story of Stoneham. I want to extend this. I want to follow the Giants to the new ballpark. And that's how this thing got launched. An initial foray into a man eventually became a biography of a team uh, which had uh, an early life coming to the the Bay Area's childhood, midlife crisis, a couple of times they almost moved, and then finally the sort of stable identity at the end sort of models a biography, but it's really about a team and a relationship to a city. Right. Uh, well, can we go back to Stoneham, uh, at least as, as a beginning, because he, he's such a, a very colorful character. Uh, um, 
he was brought up in dugouts, right? I, I mean, his father owned the Giants before he did. Yeah. Uh, um, and and you might have expected that that Stoneham had had kind of a genteel upbringing with a father so prominent in New York, but yeah. but that wasn't the case, was it? Well, it, it, his father was a rascal, and and indeed, um, I, I think there's I think my second baseball project might be about the father. He's such an amazing character. He bought the team in 1919. Some say he won it in a poker game, but that's uh, probably not uh, not the case. But he was uh, connected to some uh, shady groups in New York City about the time. His son uh, was he, the, the father made his made his money in Wall Street at the time, unregulated. Uh, it was a wide open place. Uh, so Horace, uh, the man that moved the Giants to San Francisco. Uh, had all the trappings of a, of, a, of a rich boy growing up in New York City. Uh, so much so that I think the father was worried about him and sent him out to Nevada and California to work in a mine to toughen him up. Uh, but he came, Yeah, he came back and started out. He, I think the father really... The, the, the story goes that the father bought the team for the son. I mean, this is the old story that comes up all the time in various places. However, the, the son needed some training, according to the father. So he started, Horace started out at the very bottom in the Giants organization doing tickets. And he gradually worked his way up. He handled travel arrangements and so on. And it wasn't until the early 30s that he became part of the front office. But it was to groom him to be the owner. Well, when the father died, Charles died suddenly in 35, Stoneham was the youngest owner in the history of the National League. And there he was, running this celebrated franchise. He was 32. Yes, he was. Yeah. 32, almost ready to turn 33. And and in those early days, what, what, what kind of an owner was, was this young guy uh, before the Giants left New York? I think he really enjoyed the idea of the team and the city. He loved the social life. He was a regular at Toot Shore's Saloon, where all the athletes and, and celebrities gathered. Toot Shore himself was a character. Uh, Stoneham... Um, Loved restaurants. He loved uh, the nightlife, um, and he was uh, very, very interested in his players to the point that some people say he was too loyal. He would look after them in, in so many ways. So um, he didn't uh, he didn't spare a nickel or a dime the way his counterpart Walter O'Malley would sort of make sure the salaries were manageable. Stoneham was generous, and. Um, when he moved to San Francisco, that was one of the things he loved about the city was the, the urban life. He liked the restaurants, he liked the, 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 the lunches, he, he liked the theater, and so on. Uh, so he was quite a city, city person. And, and while they were still in New York, though, uh, he, as, he was a very successful owner. Yeah, yes and no. I think, I think that the, the, the thing about the Giants is that they were the team in New York City for almost three decades until the Yankees came with Babe Ruth and, and then suddenly it was the Yankees show and the Yankees pretty much stayed that way. The Giants and the Dodgers were second fiddle and, and then the Giants fell to third fiddle when the Dodgers, when Jackie Robinson came aboard in the, in the, in the late 40s and the Dodgers had that wonderful run as, as the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, and the Giants were really the third team. So yes, they were successful. They won a number of pennants under Stoneham's ownership. Uh, especially if you go back to the father. I mean, if you look at the Stoneham years altogether, uh, they didn't win too many world championships. The celebrated one was 1954 when they swept the Cleveland Indians. Uh, so that's success, absolutely. And at, at that time, Stoneham was 
riding high in New York City. I mean, he was at the pinnacle of 1954. He was world champ. And uh, that was why it was so surprising to so many people that he, four years later, he was on his way to California. And that makes us wonder, if they're doing so well in 54, what happened to make him decide to take the team out of New York City? The 54 success was kind of a blip. He, he realized uh, the place he was playing, which the Polo Grounds had its um, attractions, but it was more of a nostalgia. Uh, it also had great liabilities. It was, at the time, the oldest ballpark in the National League. It was coming on to repairs, which was going to affect Stoneham's bottom line. There was no parking. The neighborhoods around the stadium were starting to change. Uh, he saw all this coming and realized that he probably wasn't going to be able to make it financially in New York City. His first thought was to go to Minneapolis. And he owned uh, the territorial rights to the city because the Giants' AAA team at the time was the Minneapolis Millers. Uh, Walter O'Malley had his eye on California. And uh, Stoneham decided to leave New York City way before O'Malley did. And o O'Malley being the owner of, owner of the Dodgers. And um, you hear the stories over and over again that Walter O'Malley took Stoneham by the nose and led him west. Uh, but in fact, uh, Stoneham made up his mind before O'Malley did. It's just that I think O'Malley put in, his, in Stoneham's imagination the possibility of California. That, that story about the two of them almost colluding to, to bring baseball to, to the West Coast, then you kind of debunk that a little bit, don't you, in the book? I absolutely debunk it. I think, I think it's one of those stubborn uh, myths that you still hear today that, that uh, Stoneham was duped by O'Malley in, com in coming West. But, but again, uh, if you look at the chronology, um, we already know that that version is, 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 is bunk because uh, Stoneham decided first. Um, and also, it would it would take takes away from the, the two mayors in California, uh, Mayor Paulson in L.A. and and George Christopher in San Francisco. They were working together to get teams. And when when O'Malley showed an interest in L.A., um, Paulson got together with Christopher and said, "You know, it would be a lot easier for travel if we had another team. Why don't you go after a team?" And, and sure enough, the, the idea of the Giants became a possibility. And Christopher pushed hard to convince Stoneham uh, about this. So really, I think that the idea of O'Malley being uh, the force is, is exaggerated. Stoneham was, was considered kind of a, a pioneering leader in integrating baseball. Can, can we talk a little about that? That's one of the great um, silent stories, if, you, if I can say it that way, about Stoneham. He's a true pioneer. I, I think he ought to be in the Hall of Fame. He's not there yet. Uh, that's not my job <laughs> to, to push somebody into the Hall of Fame. But I, I think for what Stoneham did to baseball, um, in the late 40s, he began signing African-American players. Just after Branch Rickey brought Jackie Robinson in, Stoneham began to see the possibility. So he was an early integrator of baseball. Um, Monty Irvin, Hank Thompson, uh, Willie Mays, they formed the first all-African-American outfield in Major League history in 1951. In addition to that, being, if you will, amenable to, remember now, there are some teams in Major League Baseball that don't integrate until late 50s. After Robinson retired, there were still teams that were resisting. 
So Stoneham gets credit, I think, for the early commitment. He also gets credit in no doubt that he brought Latinos into the game. He really was the pioneer for that. Now, he didn't bring the first one in. Minnie Minoso was the first player to come in. But Stoneham's organization and Stoneham's commitment to uh, um, Lat Latin players uh, and, and the Giants in 1960 when they were two years into San Francisco, they were the truly integrated team in all of baseball uh, by far in terms of number and, and, and the commitment to Latin American players. So yes, yeah, Stoneham should get credit for that. And, and, and didn't he also recruit the first Japanese player to the, That's to right. the American Masanori, baseball? Masanori Murakami was the first Japanese national to play in Major League Baseball. And he was uh, he played for the San Francisco Giants. So that's another example of Stoneham's, if you will, uh, future. <laughs> you look now at, 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 at how many Japanese players, and not just pitchers, but position players. I mean, you know, we know all about Ichiro up here. Uh, so, yeah, this is another thing that Stoneham would get credit for. Mm. Yeah. Before we came out here, we were we were talking about how you got going on the book and and the research that you did on it. And I wonder if you could tell us again some of the stories about how the Giants were so cooperative with connecting you with with the people that helped you to tell the story in the book. Well, I had met Bill Newcomb socially, and I followed up. Bill Newcomb at the time was the chief managing partner of the Giants, and also and, a Puget Sound trustee and, and a parent of a student. Exactly, and he and at that time I was unaware of the connection with you know, Bill had with this university. Uh, it turns out it was a deep a deep connection, and, it, and that came up much much later. So in a way, he granted me access to the team, and I can tell you how that happened without no without the University of Puget Sound uh, <laughs> imprimatur, if you will, being involved with that. Uh, Bill. Um, as I say, I met him socially, and then I followed up with an email about two months later. This was at the very beginning of the research, which was about 2010, when the Giants, their first world championship in San Francisco was in 2010. Uh, so I wrote Bill an email and said, it reminded him that we met, and I told him what I was doing. I, I was beginning very early stages of this book on, on Horace Stoneham, I thought at the time. And... Uh, would it be possible to go in and see the archives and Giants, whatever there is there? And he, said, he wrote back immediately and said, absolutely. And he gave me a name and he said, and then he wrote the person. He said, I want to introduce Rob Garrett. He's coming in to see. And then I interviewed Bill. as as the And he then said, well, you need to see this guy and you need to see that guy. And, and, and pretty soon the archivist was saying to me, you need to see this. And all, all of a sudden I was being put in, in contact with Giants player, former Giants players, administrators, and so on. And um, I started out with Monty Irvin, 93-year-old Monty Irvin, who played in the Polo, never played in San Francisco, but he was part of Major League Baseball because he was in the commissioner's office. Uh, and Monty and I did the interview right here in Puget Sound in the library because I was deathly afraid that I would screw it up. And I got all the techies to be, you know, and I said, now you guys, this is a big deal. And, you know, they were all gathered around. By, by tech, I mean, you needed techies because you were doing this over Skype. You we did it on Skype. And, and I thought, Skype, I mean, this sounds like Star Wars to me. I just can't <laughs> imagine. Anyway, uh, it turned out beautifully. Monty was so kind and wonderful and is so sharp. I asked him a question about Horace Stoneham. I said, how did you get paid in those days, Monty? And he said, well, we used to have a, a, a little stool in front of each player in the locker room. And every month, there would be an envelope on top of the stool. And our paycheck was in that envelope. 
And I said, wow. And he, I said, did Stoneham do this? He's no, no, Stoneham negotiated the contracts, but it was Eddie Brannick, the secretary, used to come around every 30 days and put an envelope in front of us. And then we would take that off and go to the bank. Uh, he said, there was no electronic stuff the way there is today, you know. He says, and then he, I said, well, how did you figure out um, what you were going to make? And he said, well, I'll tell you a story about Horace Stoneham. He says, in the 19, after the 1951 World Series, he said, I had a pretty good World Series. And I said, I know you did. You stole home, didn't you, in the first game? And he said, and he, he not only told me about stealing home, he told me who the ump was, who was up. Who the catcher was, Yogi Berra. Uh, anyway, it was, I mean, what a memory, right? So we get back to the story of the paycheck. So he says, Stoneham called me in after the World Series in 1951. He said, Monty, we're going to work on your paycheck for next year. He said, what did you make last year? And he said, well, Mr. Stoneham, always Mr. Stoneham, I made 12500 Monty, what do you say we double your salary? He said, so then Irvin said to me immediately after saying that, he said, all of a sudden I became one of the top 25% of ballplayers in 1952. He said, that's what Stoneham was like. And I have subsequently heard other stories from people like Willie McCovey, who told me about Stoneham's generosity with contracts. So it was a pretty amazing story to hear. And it also said, it spoke volumes about Stoneham, who was so, so concerned with his players. Who were some of the other people that the Giants helped you get in touch with for the book? Well, I guess the the one that you might say knocked me off my pins uh, was Willie Mays. I I, um, I made contact with Willie Mays through again another contact with the Giants. This time it was Bob Lurie, the former the man who bought the team from uh, from from uh, Horace Stoneham, and he had a, he knew Willie very well. And, and anyway, I was uh, I was able to go into Willie's home for about an hour. And I must say, walking in to meet Willie Mays was awesome and, and truly humbling. I mean, I had heard he was really rough on writers and, and I didn't know how to classify myself. I'm not a journalist um, and that's, he dealt mostly with journalists in his career. And so he didn't like to do that much and he wasn't accessible that because of that. So the idea that I was able to speak to him was a, a pretty big deal. And he was so generous. I had done my homework, and he told me, hey, you've done your homework. <laughs> I remember, you know, I had, I had some things that uh, I wanted to talk to him about, and he wanted to talk about Stoneham. And he told me some things that I had never, uh, never heard before about Stoneham. And it's in the book. I was able to contribute, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, so um, it, was a, it was an amazing experience. And again, Willie, um, 83 years old, but you saw in the physical presence what an athlete still i mean his his shape was still muscular and 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 he gripped you know when when i shook hands with him <laughs> you you had a feel for this this grip he he was it was it was an amazing experience wonderful uh, a very generous guy in the end we had a wonderful conversation that's neat so uh, while we're on the subject of willie then um he He's, his last game for the Giants was while they were when they were in San Francisco, and that was well. His last game as a San Francisco Giant was in Montreal, and uh, this was one part of Stoneham's sorrow. Stoneham realized he could no longer afford to keep Willie Mays, and so he he troubled over this for so long, and uh, in the end he made a, he thought he was making a secret deal with the Mets, 
because he wanted he only negotiated with one team. He wanted Willie to go back to New York, where Willie had, had such his early career was so promising there, and he was a great hero to still a great hero in the city. And um, they decided to take him. And so Willie found out about this more or less secondhand, or maybe even thirdhand. I don't remember. He did. He didn't go into. But he told me that he was quite upset because he thought that he had played his entire career uh, with the Giants, and he thought he would learn from Stoneham. And Stoneham, on the other hand, was afraid that if this didn't go through, that Willie would think he was sort of fought, you know, being sent out somewhere. So it was. Each man had his own reasons, I think, for. But at the end, uh, he uh, ironically uh, they made the deal, and ironically the very um, the very first team that Mays in a Mets uniform now, the very first team he played against were the Giants. They were coming from Montreal to New York, and so um, his first game was against his former team, and he ended up hitting a home run to break a tie and win the game. That night, Stoneham called him to his hotel room. Uh, upset about the trade, wanted, and he sat up all basically all night with Mays. Mays there, and Mays, this is the story Mays told me, which I had never heard before. And he said, "I realized then how much, how much, how upset Stoneham was about the trade, and also how much he cared for me as a person, and how much they. The whole point of the trade was to set Willie up with the Mets in a way that Stoneham could not provide for him after retirement." And, and, and that's what Mays came to understand, was that the Mets were going to keep him as a coach. Maybe, who knows, he might have become a manager. And that was what Stone was trying to do, is give, settle Mays for life, so to speak. And uh, Mays discovered that and realized what, a, what, a, what an amazing person Stone was. And because Stone couldn't afford to do he that. He couldn't afford it himself, so he wanted to get Mays placed. And the Mets were well-heeled. They, they had good, good financing, and they were drawing well in... In, uh, in New York City, so. So that then leads us to Stoneham having to sell the Giants. Yeah, that was the, sort of the, not the beginning of the end, but that was sort of in the middle. Stoneham just uh, started, uh, I mean, the Giants, they were aging and Mays was, was 40 in, in, in 1971. And so all of this was coming at a time when the Giants' fortunes were, they weren't playing as well. The gate was, Oakland had come in 1968, splitting the Bay Area and basically in two gates, hurt the Giants a lot with attendance. And in those days, that was it. You didn't have what you have today with Major League Baseball and contracts and TV and merchandising and all that. The gate was primarily how the clubs made money. And when the gate was cut in half, Stoneham felt it deeply. And he realized he couldn't keep players like Mays. But he also realized he had to start trading other people. He left McCovey go, he let Marischal go, and so on, all these superstars. And by 1974, the club was insolvent. They were, they were in the red so badly uh, that he um, had to go and get a loan from the National League just to meet payroll. And then he realized he had to sell the team. Which slowly brought on the, I guess, what you call the third era of the Giants. Yeah, Bob Lurie steps up, and that's a soap opera story in and of itself, how that happened. Uh, 11th hour, they were on their way to Toronto. Uh, George Marsconi was just a, a, um, elected mayor of San Francisco, and he was bound and determined not to be the mayor that lost the team. So he got a judge to... They, the big issue was the contract the city had with the Giants. They, were, they owned Candlestick Park, and the Giants were their tenants. 
and Stoneman agreed on a 34-year lease. Well, it was only in his 15th year. So they were holding the Giants hostage, if you will, because legally, legally, because of the lease. And um, the judge at the time uh, put in a temporary restraining order on, on the sale because Stoneham had agreed to sell the team to Toronto and they were going to move, Labatt Brewery was part of the d decision, uh, the group that wanted to bring the team to Toronto. And so they were on their way. And it was literally a, a, a 11th hour tactics that got Bob Lurie into the making another offer that equaled the Toronto offer. And, and when, when Moscone walked into the courtroom, he had Lurie in tow and they presented the offer to the judge. And then um, Moscone went outside and the judge, you know, rapped, said, okay, we're, we're done here. It looks like the Giants are going to stay and so on. And <laughs> a famous line, Moscone, they, 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 the press is outside interviewing me. He said, what, what, what do you think? He said, Bobby Thompson lives. And it was a reference to the famous home run in 1951 when Bobby Thompson came in the ninth inning when the game was all but, the Dodgers all but won the game, Bobby Thompson hits the famous home run. So it was the, he thought it was the equivalent in Giants history of that kind of thing, that moment where you save the team, you know. So it was, it was quite a story. And then Lurie became owner for uh, almost 17 years. And, and then he gave way to McGowan, uh, Peter McGowan's group. Uh, and they were... They were the ones so successful in, uh, they had a beautiful um, plan to build a private stadium, and that's how we got today AT&T as a result of McGowan's work, and the Giants are prospering there. So it's 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 really a lovely story in, in the sense that there's a lot of fragility in, in, in the uh, history of the Giants in San Francisco, and almost twice almost you know they they were going and and and, and local ownership stepped up again in the 11th hour uh, both times and uh and now they're stable and my goodness the fans they're crazy for the giants and they've won three world championships so i don't deal with that in the book that that's not my purpose in writing this book was to talk about the recent success although that's quite appropriate and and it's been done quite a bit there many stories and a couple of books about, about the recent success. My, my interest was really to go back to the beginning. How did they get here? Uh, what, were, what were their experiences when they first arrived? The great euphoria that were, you know, the, the great early success, and then gradually the, the rocky times and the turbu turbu turbulent times, and, and that's where the word comes in in the, in the history of the Giants. Uh, that was what I was interested in. Is sort of the bedrock of this wonderful story today. It, it comes from these early years. So that was what it, what I focused on. We're out of time, but I, I just have to ask you one more thing. As as a guy who appreciates literature, um, do you read Roger Angel? Well, Roger Angel is one of the guys I quote a lot. He's uh, to me the best baseball writer I, I've ever read. I mean, he's uh, almost poetic. <laughs> uh, I, I find his his views of I mean, in, in some ways, uh, it was it, it, writers like Roger Angel got me more enthusiastic about doing this project because the, the quality of the writing is so so good, and uh, I I marvel. In fact, I use I quote Roger a few times. Uh, I I re, I, re, I tried to get in contact with him. He he interviewed Stoneham uh, in a very famous essay. Uh, 1975, when Stoneham was selling the team, Roger uh, published this um, wonderful essay on Stoneham, and I, I read it. I was moved 
by it so much that I decided I would use it in the book. Was it in the New Yorker? Well, I, all of, all of, most of his stuff was in the New Yorker, but these all come eventually. They're collected. This was, I think, from uh, the collection Five Stevens. Yes, it it was New, the New Yorker originally. Right. Yeah, nineteen seventy five. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Well, I'm sorry, we're running out of time. No, no, this thank is you. Great fun. Thank you very much for having me. It's 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 nice to be here. I really appreciate it. All right. What we do is brought to you by University of Puget Sound. Join us next Wednesday for another story about what we do at Puget Sound. And if you liked this podcast, rate us on iTunes. 